From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Leaked Pentagon documents reveal an Achilles heel as Ukraine fends off Russia. We've heard these concerns from day one. And every single time we hear these concerns, the Ukrainians overperform. Congressman Jason Crow today. We'll also discuss what lessons ought to be learned from the war in Afghanistan two years after the U.S. withdrawal. The generals come out and the generals say, well, we can win. We just need more troops. We just need more tanks. We just need more time. And of course, the generals are going to say that. That's what generals always say. You'll never find a general that says we can't win this. We have to end it. That's just not military culture. And later, a trauma nurse processes his own trauma. When you say I'm a trauma ICU nurse, people automatically are like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I've never seen an ICU nurse handle that question well. When your car stops working, needs too many repairs, or when you're just ready for a new one, donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll come pick it up, then send you a tax receipt when it sells. To get things started, all you have to do is follow a few simple setup steps, say goodbye, and then your car will soon be on its way to making great things happen. Start the donation process on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Since the U.S.'s chaotic and deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021, Republicans on Capitol Hill have demanded answers. On the biggest national security fiasco in a generation, there has been zero accountability. Our credibility has has been gravely damaged, has it not, General Milley? Now we have the National Security Council's take on what happened. In essence, the Biden administration's view. A 12-page summary finds the withdrawal process should have started earlier, casting blame on the Trump White House. We'll get a key lawmaker's take, one who also served in Afghanistan. Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora is on the House Intelligence, Armed Services, and Foreign Affairs Committees. Most notably, perhaps, he helped create a bipartisan commission to review the war. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Always good to be with you, Ryan. Before we get to Afghanistan, there's a developing foreign affairs story, the leak of Pentagon documents related to a whole host of countries, Ukraine, Russia, China, Egypt, Iran, Israel, Canada, and the list goes on. According to the Washington Post, one of the leaks, labeled Top Secret, seems to indicate the U.S. has doubts about a Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia, along with other misgivings. That document was produced in February, I'll note, but I'm, I'm wondering what your reaction is to that particular file and to the leaks in general. Yeah, well, Ryan, first of all, the leaks in general, I mean, this looks like a, a very troubling, very problematic leak. It's broad. It, it's certainly one of the bigger leaks that I'm seeing uh, probably in my time in Congress. So very troubled by it. But I, I think we also should have some perspective here that this is a snapshot in time. Right? Wars evolve. Things change from day to day. Uh, this is a snapshot. The, the documents appear to be a snapshot in time from February and March. So maybe of limited value. Uh, yet at the same time, it does show troop strength numbers, uh, disposition of troops, things of that nature, but also signals, intelligence intercepts from uh, various countries. So very problematic. I've asked for a, a full briefing by the Defense Department on the, the nature of this leak, what they know about it, what they've done to, to mitigate it. Uh, but the concerns about the ability of the Ukrainians to conduct a counteroffensive, I mean, listen, it, it, we've heard these concerns from day one. 
And every single time we hear these concerns, the Ukrainians overperform. You know, people said that they couldn't learn how to use weapon systems, that they then ended up not only learning how to use, but learning how to use better than uh, the U.S. in many instances. So they've always overperformed. They've always surprised people in a positive way. And I expect they'll continue to do that. Do you think that the leak has Russian fingerprints? I, I don't I guess I don't want you to speculate, but do you have any sense here? I don't. I think it's too early to tell. I mean, it certainly borders on a kind of a seditious or treasonous act, in my view. You know, somebody that would take documents of this nature uh, and publish them online. And certainly not somebody that has the best interests of America in mind here. So what their motivation is, who did it, remains to be seen. When you look at the collection of files in its entirety, another example is Egypt, which is considered an ally of the U.S. trying to supply rockets to Russia. Uh, in, in what ways do you think the U.S. is left most vulnerable? Well, I'm going to be calling for a, a full review of our relationship with Egypt because, you know, we shouldn't be spending you know, $1.3 or $1.4 billion a year to assist them with their uh, military and their modernization efforts if they're then going in the back door and looking at sending weapons and equipment to Russia. I mean, that is not the type of friend or alliance that I think we need to have. And we should do a full analysis of what we're doing and why we're doing it and whether or not we need to hold some folks accountable. I gather from that answer, Congressman, that you have learned some things from these documents. This was not classified material you'd had access to. Well, I'm not going to, I wouldn't say I've, I've learned things from these documents. I mean, I sit on the House Intelligence Committee, which has access to all of the intelligence of the United States, you know, in, in every category. So uh, I, I, I'll refrain from saying whether or not there's something new or not. But the real troubling aspect is that this has been public and is information that's widely available now, which, of course, is unacceptable. To Afghanistan and some context, when the U.S. tried to evacuate people from the airport in Kabul just about two years ago, 13 American servicemen were killed in a suicide bombing. Afghans who'd been helpful to the U.S. cause were left to fend for themselves against the Taliban. Uh, I gather you have read the National Security Council's report, and what's a big takeaway for you from it? I have. Uh, you know, obviously this is something that I have struggled with a lot, uh, this withdrawal. You know, I, I supported the administration's decision to end the war. I thought the war was unwinnable. It was unwinnable a long time ago. And I didn't think we should continue to spend tens of billions of dollars a year in American lives uh, in, a, in an unwinnable war. And I wanted to see it end. And the president had the courage to do something that prior presidents and congresses weren't willing to do. And he did it. Now, I, I did think that the withdrawal was messy. It was chaotic. There were a lot of mistakes that were made. And I haven't pulled punches on that. I think we have left behind some of our Afghan partners and, and their families. And I've worked really hard to make sure we're pulling those folks out. And I've been one of the leaders in Congress on legislation to help get these people uh, into uh, safety and into the United States and other countries. But this report shows a couple of things. Number one, that this is a, a long time mistake. This isn't just August of 2021. This was a 20 year mistake. Uh, and Donald Trump was the one who negotiated this deal in the dark without even consulting with the military or the State Department and our allies uh, and uh, committed the U.S. to a, a withdrawal timeline that was untenable and then started a withdrawal of troops immediately thereafter. And, and President Biden inherited all that and was really left with two choices, either comply with that agreement or not comply with that agreement, in which case the Taliban would conduct a full-out assault on U.S. troops. We didn't have enough troops uh, in country at that time to respond to that attack, so we would have had to have sent in 
10, 15, 20,000 more, and it would have been all out war, which of course was not a, a tenable result. So I think he then uh, made the decision to move forward with the withdrawal. But yes, uh, there were problems with the conduct of that, a lack of unity of command, lack of guidance, a lack of coordination between State Department and DOD. Uh, and of course, the withdrawal itself should have started earlier. And the report shows that. It says that there should have been an earlier withdrawal. So there were lessons learned, but I want to take a holistic look at this and not just look at it in, in one small, narrow frame. One commentator from the Center for Naval Analyses has called the NSC's assessment a political document designed to deflect blame in advance of a gathering storm of House GOP hearings. What's your response? Yeah, I, I fully disagree with that. The document and the spokespeople for Department of Defense, for State Department, even Secretary of State Tony Blinken last week during a gathering of State Department employees admitted that there were mistakes, admitted that withdrawal should have started earlier. They have admitted uh, things that could have done better because, you know, in an operation like this, of course, there are missteps and mistakes uh, and, and things that didn't go well. And they've taken responsibility for that. But you just can't look at, you know, a 20-year war where there's over 3,000 American soldiers that were killed, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, a two-decade story of missteps and mistakes. You just can't look at that in isolation. Ten Congresses, both Republican and Democrat, in four presidential administrations, also both Republican and Democrat, made mistakes, uh, self-blinded, kept this going when it should have ended a long time ago. And that's a story that America needs to come to terms with. We can't afford to do this again. In a statement you issued after the release of the NSC's report, you said, I might not be here today without the guides and translators that aided our efforts, many of whom are still trying to escape Afghanistan. Congressman Crow, could you elaborate on that? Is there anyone in particular that you have in mind? Yeah, my translators, my guides, you know, they were essential. You know, I'm not going to name names uh, sure, to, to sure. keep people safe, but time after time, we'd be out on patrol, you know, deep into Afghanistan territory in the mountains, and those guides would just, they would be a lot more than just people that would translate the words. They would help me understand the culture. They would help me understand what's going on. I mean, it, it, numerous instances where I would be meeting with tribal elders deep in a village somewhere in a remote area where we're very vulnerable. Uh, in, in, a, in a small unit. And, uh, you know, my translator would say, hey, there's something not right here. Something doesn't match up. What you're being told is not consistent with the, with the history of this tribe in this region. Uh, they're, they're, you know, giving each other looks that make me uncomfortable. And, and you know, that, that translator would have the ability to understand what was going on, the subtext, what was being said between the words. Mm. And uh, I could make decisions to pull out. I could make decisions to to move my, my troops around based on that, that was essential, right? It protected us. Uh, it protected the locals in many instances. And these folks did that work at great personal risk to themselves and their families, knowing and thinking that we would keep our promise and do right by them. So that that's the moral commitment that we have. That's the national security commitment that we have, and we have to strive to keep it. You've pushed indeed for more visas to help some of the folks you're talking about uh, where do things stand on growing the number of those uh, visas, SIVs, I think they are, special immigrant visas? Yep. So we uh, we, we passed my Allies Act. So in, in July of 21, uh, my bill uh, passed that summer, which actually was one of, the, one of the most bipartisan bills in Congress that summer. It passed with 416 votes. Uh, only a handful of Republicans voted against it. 
but uh, it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. And I continue to co-chair the Honoring Our Promises Working Group, which is a bipartisan working group in, in the House of uh, largely veterans, actually, both Republican and Democrat, who are working to pass legislation. So I'm working with um, Senator Shaheen, Gene Shaheen, to put together a comprehensive package of legislation to expand visas, to expedite the process, to do things like remote processing, you know, all things that need to be done to make it easier for folks who are still in Afghanistan when we don't have an embassy there uh, and operations on the ground there anymore, to still uh, have a mechanism to leave the country to get out of there safely. So we're working hard to, to legislate this uh, and to make sure there's still a pathway. So that's the process. What, what's been the result? I mean, how many Afghans are there that you'd like to get out and what, what could the U.S. reasonably do on the visas? Well, right now, there's about 150,000 applicants uh, in Afghanistan. Those are principal applicants. Those are just the people who said they've worked for the U.S. government during the 20-year war. Usually, 60 to 70 percent fall off. So we think that there's, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 50 to, to 70,000 um, Afghans who did legitimately work for the United States government or allies who are there. And, and not all of those folks will complete the application process. So you know, we think there's a lot who are, uh, have been left behind, who are still there, who we could pull to safety. But the pipeline is obviously very small. So figuring out both how do we get them out of the country, how do we process them, and how we vet them effectively is a real challenge. Uh, we are working with uh, some of our other partners. So Qatar, uh, the Qataris uh, have a presence there, and they're a close partner of the United States. And they, they have uh, an embassy in Kabul, and they, they've been working with us to facilitate some of those interviews and, and some of the exit procedures. But it is it is very, very challenging. There's no doubt about that. You helped establish the bipartisan Afghan War Commission. And I'll note that you said after the NSC's report that you will work to provide a full facts-based accounting of our nation's longest war. You seemed to indicate earlier that we ought to take some lessons away from Afghanistan, perhaps so that we don't repeat the history. What is one question before we go that you're still asking in regards to the war? You know, I think the ultimate question here is, as a nation, why did we allow a war to go on for 20 years when there were more than enough signs that this war was unwinnable and we weren't going to achieve our goals years ago? You know, why did we stop having a conversation about this? But Congressman, right? think, it sounds almost like you're talking about Vietnam. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and of well, course that, of that was in yeah that was uh, that was invoked a lot in relation to Afghanistan. There's a lot of parallels, and, and and frankly, I think the responsibility lies with Congress ultimately. And here's why: you know, our Constitution gives Congress the authority to decide matters of war and peace. It's only Congress that can authorize the use of force, right? Congress decides military policy. We set the military budget. And what happened was, you know, after 9-11, we provided these authorizations for use of military force, these AUMFs, which yeah. is how Congress carries that out. And they were essentially blank checks. And we gave it to administration after administration. We didn't rein it in. They didn't sunset. And then we stopped having a national conversation about it. And we stopped holding people accountable. And then the generals come out. And the generals say, well, we can win this. We just need more troops. We just need more tanks. We just need more time. And of course, the generals are going to say that. That's what generals always say, right? They, they, you'll never find a general that says, we can't win this. We have to end it. 
That's just not military culture. But that's also why we have civilian control of the military, because it's our elected officials that should be held accountable. It should make those tough calls and say, no, we're not going to win this and we're going to end it. So what, what happened and why did we stop having that national conversation? And frankly, that's why one of my priorities in Congress has been ending these AUMFs. We actually have a bill right now to end one, uh, one that's still being used, and replace it with one that sunsets, that has very, very defined guardrails. Uh, and, and puts that responsibility on Congress to continue to have that conversation and to be accountable to the American people. And that's ultimately how our system is structured, but it hasn't worked that way. And we have to get it back to working the right way. I just have to follow up on the notion that you are hard pressed to find a general who would tell you we can't win this war. Mm-hmm. Should we be training generals differently? Well, I mean, military culture is, is mission first, right? No, I, I don't think that this is a general issue. This is a, a checks and balance between, you know, what we ask our military to do versus civilian control of the military, right? I mean, I, I used to be a military officer, and you put mission first. It, it's no fail. You get it done at all costs. And, of course, that's what we want our military to be thinking and doing. That's also why generals in the military don't make those decisions about whether, how we're going to commit our military and when we're going to stop. Mm-hmm. That's on our civilian elected leadership. We have civilian control of the military in the United States of America, which actually is unique. A lot of countries don't have that. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Congressman Jason Crow, veteran of the war in Afghanistan. He represents Colorado's 6th District, which includes Aurora and Highlands Ranch. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with poetry crafted in the ICU. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Many of Colorado's biggest challenges stem from climate change. Extreme weather, water, air pollution, and wildfires. Stay informed about one of the most serious existential issues of our time with CPR's weekly climate newsletter. Every Monday, a roundup of stories curated by CPR's Climate Solutions team comes to your email inbox and gives you a deeper understanding of climate issues and solutions. Sign up for your copy now at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. Art therapy for medical workers. Research at CU Anschutz in Aurora looks at how making art might help ease stress and trauma in the healthcare field. Denverite's Kevin Beatty reports. Close your eyes. And I want you to move toward your very favorite space. A group of nurses and medical researchers sit in silence as arts therapist Catherine Reed guides them through meditation. Really take in the visual experience. Is it bright? Is it night? Before them are open sketchbooks. Pages blank for now. Open your eyes, find your art supplies, and create that place on your page. Reed has used painting and drawing to help soothe patients and workers at Children's Hospital Colorado's Ponzio Creative Arts Therapy Program for almost 20 years. But she can never say scientifically how it helped reduce PTSD, trauma, and burnout. There's plenty of qualitative data out there. Lots of stories, lots of narrative evidence that what we do works. But what we wanted was the hard quantitative data. That changed last year. Reed got a note from Dr. Mark Moss, a critical care doctor at the University of Colorado Medical Center who's studied mental health and hospital workers for decades. We've been studying wellness and healthcare professionals for about 20 years now. And when we would first present this at national meetings, people really 
didn't appreciate or understand the magnitude of what we were talking about. And we initially called it a silent epidemic because we had shown that nurses in the intensive care unit, up to 80% of them, had some form of psychological distress. Moss had been studying workplace impacts, but he found a grant offered by the National Endowment for the Arts that was bent on finding solutions. To get the grant, he needed to partner with arts groups, so he enlisted Reed and Michael Henry, who co-founded Denver's Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Together, they wrote an application, got the grant, and set up a study to see if group therapy infused with writing, art, music, and dance would help alleviate trauma. They called the project the Colorado Resiliency Arts Lab, or CORAL. I would say to them, you don't have to write about work. You can write about your dog. You can write about your family. That's Henry, who was new to this kind of scientific work. But like Reed, he had experience helping students work through tough times with creativity. And then when when people seemed like they were getting more safe, I would say write about a good day at work and then write about a bad day at work. And then sometimes the floodgates would open. And the floodgates did open. When they finished their first study and ran numbers from psychological surveys taken before and after, the results floored them. They saw between 25 and 35% drops in depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder compared to their control group. Their findings were published last September in the American Journal of Medicine. It's significant. It's really significant. And other behavioral health research studies, they're not seeing numbers like that. What's more, they followed students for a year after their creative interventions and found the benefits stuck. People kept drawing, writing, and dancing. As we all know, behavioral interventions, like if you go, um, I'm going to go to the gym and start working out, or I'm going to lose weight, it's very unusual that behavioral interventions remain for up to 12 months. Now, this is a pilot study. It's not the definitive study, but it's really very encouraging. So that's where they are now, continuing to help doctors, nurses, researchers, and other staffers blow off some steam in a safe, creative space. Um, I would say my low for the week is kind of on the same page as everyone else, just exhausted. So I'm tired. I'm running on caffeine. And you're still here. And I'm still here. Uh, Yeah, I thought it would be a good release. During the pandemic, a lot of Americans realized how hard patient care can be for these essential workers. Reed, Moss, and Henry are hopeful their research will help them not forget it and grow a movement to do something about it. Kevin Beatty, Denverite. Well, nurse manager Brian Gardner also took part in this art therapy program. He's with Denver Health and used to work in the ICU there. Gardner is finding poetry especially effective. I asked him to read something he's written. The poem is called Sentinels. There she stands, watching over her charge with expectant failure. No choice in this assignment, no time to establish natural rapport. Affection, concern, warmth, and tenderness born from what she is. The whole of mortal knowledge tested, refined through prior blazes, inherently yields a deleterious recollection. Yet she stands as guardian until the final breath has dissipated throughout the atmosphere. There he stands, partially ruined as the scene unfolds around him. Screams from broken homes, friendships torn asunder, echo through the halls, memories he will never lose. His strength is not enough. His mind darkens in the dwindling light. Afraid his own tears will mingle upon the floor with the discharged grief, his burden buried deep within. Yet he stands until all noise is canceled out by empty space. 
There they stand, steeled together in silent aftermath. Worlds of machines now ceased. Failed interventions litter the ground. Tragic stricken loved ones, specialists of care, emotional tourists, all departed. No one save these four. The dance of electric life slows its cadence. No words are offered, slower still. A tender hand gracefully offers final reassuring contact. There they stand, refusing the dancer's solitude in the finale. We stand, beings of our own emotion, thoughts, hopes, aspirations, strengthened by souls around us engaged in such endeavors. Knowledge multiplied, skills passed as treasured heirlooms, peace and existence found in each added bond. Laughter, yes, laughter, mends the darkest wounds. Together we learn, together we grow, together we mourn, together we stand. This is my first time hearing the poem. And my initial reaction is that we're at a deathbed or a series of them. And we have a care team involved in watching that transition happen despite the best efforts. Correct. It's one specific instant. Do you want to take me to this instance? Where did you write this? Uh, I actually wrote this at work while I was in the ICU. We had a patient who had a very significant trauma, young gentleman. He had already been to the OR, come back to the ICU, where we do our best to try to stabilize him. And he very quickly decompensated to the point where we couldn't get him back to the OR. So we did what uh, we call as kind of a crash OR setup where we bring the OR into the ICU. My goodness. So it's a very quick process. People just kind of flood the unit really quickly with all the tools and gear required to do this. And it is a kind of a last-ditch effort to save someone's life who is really struggling. Was the timing of that before or after the pandemic? Uh, right in the middle of it, Right actually. in the middle. So this was not a COVID-related death. Correct. But you were no doubt carrying the burden of the pandemic as a healthcare worker. Yes. I'm not sure that anybody, like, anywhere didn't carry the burden of the pandemic, but definitely in the hospitals it was raised to a higher degree. Yeah. But it's also the the reality of the fact that you were dealing with COVID as a health emergency and all of the other health emergencies that can happen in or out of a pandemic. Correct. Mm -hmm. Particularly in ICU, critical care, emergency rooms, there is a lot of stress involved just with the patients that we can receive. And clearly the deaths do impact us quite significantly. Had you written a poem before this? There was another one that I had written for this program, and it was called Today I Watched You Die. <laughs> Sounds like a similar theme. Yeah. But I suppose before getting involved in choral, had you written poetry? No, actually. Oh. I've, I've written some kind of short stories for myself. Um, but Would I you hadn't... have called yourself a writer, a poet? <laughs> that, that's an interesting question. So I had read a book once by Stephen King on writing, and he said the only reason that he gave himself permission to write was because another person that he looked up to just said he could. So he called himself a writer, hmm. and then he went on to write all of his books. So I guess I would say, sure, I'm a writer because <laughs> I get that permission. But I don't know that anyone else would ever say I was a writer. Did you find it therapeutic cathartic to write that poem. I extremely. Why, do you think? 
I think the biggest reason why I found it cathartic is it's really hard to share the experiences that we go through as nurses with really anybody else. Like lay people. Correct. Yeah, I hear this from people in, in the military and people in law enforcement, that if you're not part of that group, it's kind of hard to feel connected to those you might be telling the story to. Well, <laughs> there, there was a line that I used in the poem called emotional tourists, and that's kind of how lay people ask you about these experiences. Mm-hmm. When you say, I'm a trauma ICU nurse, people automatically are like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I've never seen an ICU nurse handle that question well. Because people want to hear the things that you'll see on the news. They want to hear about the gunshots. They want to hear about the normal violence that you have out there in the city. And those aren't the things that destroy nurses. Mm-hmm. So when you start thinking about what are the challenging things that you have as a nurse, how do you explain to someone that you've identified a human trafficking victim who was thrown out of a car at 70 miles an hour and their handlers are trying to get back into the hospital? How do you convey what that makes you feel like as a nurse and as a person to anybody else? That's an experience you've had? Yes. Brian, thank you for sharing that. It occurs to me then that the most cathartic thing would be to just talk to other nurses, but you said that the writing of the poem was cathartic. Our conversations can be really challenging for each other as well. So I can traumatize another nurse by sharing my own stories. Mm because they have something to reference with what I'm telling them. Oh, that's interesting. So if I want to talk about um, like a 14-year-old that I took care of and the tragic situation around them, that might trigger another nurse to have their own kind of moment where they, they start remembering their incidents. And I personally kind of don't want, I don't want to send someone down that path. Uh-huh. My particular facility has an amazing program called Restore Uh, which is a peer responding program to help nurses with these kind of traumas. And they've received some training to kind of help us talk through these things. Uh, But that program was in its infancy at about the time of this choral study. And because I liked writing, the choral study really appealed to me. I'll say again, choral is Colorado Resiliency Arts Lab. And so I suppose in this way, One, the poem allows you to get it out, get it on paper, and then whoever wishes to pick it up, whoever chooses to have that experience can do so. Correct. You're not kind of inflicting that on them. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way of putting it. There are any number of indicators that a lot of healthcare workers left the field after the pandemic. Yeah. Did you (laughs) tell me about that reaction before I ask my question? Um, I think I'm not sure that everybody left the field. I think people kind of took stock in where they were at in their lives and made decisions accordingly. Uh-huh. I know that others went into you know different versions of healthcare. Did you see a lot of attrition around you, and did you think about leaving? I actually did not see a lot of attrition. One of the things I really love about my hospital that I work with, particularly in the ICU, they have nurses that have been there for. 10, 15, 20 years, which is really not the norm mm-hmm. throughout most of other healthcare facilities. Um, and I think that speaks to the facility that we have, the team that we have, and the kind of the support that we have. Am I allowed to say Denver Health? <laughs> you, of course you're allowed to say Denver Health. <laughs> okay. Brian, why, why didn't COVID burn you out? 
Oh, I it did. I'd say I would say I was really close to being burned out. Uh, I'm a nurse manager now because I took a route out aside of the ICU. I have a lot of friends that are still in the ICU and made it through that whole thing quite well. But for me, there was a lot of taxing moments that led me into different routes within my same hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, becoming a leader was one of those things that, because of my own experience, I wanted to be able to make sure that I could be a support for my team and other nurses as well. I wanted to be there for them the way that some of my leaders were for me. Ah, so did your management position in nursing in a way grow out of the pandemic? Absolutely. I note that the choral program also has dance, music, and visual arts. Yeah. Are you open to using dance or, you know, music as a way to boost your resilience? I am absolutely open to listening to music (laughs) as a way of boosting my resilience. Not necessarily making it? No, the program didn't give us a specific choice. Like, there was a chance that we were going to be filtered into any of those programs. You could express maybe a preference. Exactly. And that's what I was like, I would prefer writing. Uh (laughs) Uh, And I thought maybe drawing, although I couldn't draw a straight line to save my life, that still seemed less anxiety provoking than, say, interpretive dance. Yeah. (laughs) So the dancing's a no too? Well, I mean, for me. Okay. We're not going to kind of Ellen DeGeneres out of the studio after this. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. (laughs) You're very welcome. Do you think you'll keep writing in this way? Yeah, I do. I I think the program gave me a lot of respect for what it can do for your own stress and anxiety and the way that you deal with trauma. Mm. I think it's important to get that out of your system, whatever whatever that looks like in a healthy way. I think a lot of healthcare professionals or, or just human beings deal with stress very poorly. I think any program or any method that allows us to process trauma and hurt feelings and or just feelings that you don't even understand, I think is helpful. I mean, some of these poems, like even this one, I don't know that I understood how I felt until I put it on paper. Oh, that's interesting. In other words, you knew that there was a feeling, an, an emotion, but you didn't necessarily have a label for it or a word for it. Yeah, it was just it was just there. So what was it? Was it anger? Was it hurt? Was it fear? Uh, probably all of the above. Uh-huh. I mean, when you're kind of in these moments, it, it is anger uh, at the situation and the reason why someone's in there. It's anxiety because it's your job to try to save these lives. And that's where the huge, amazing benefit of being a nurse is, is that sometimes you get to do that. Sometimes you have tremendous impact on people who have devastating injuries. But in these cases here, where the outcome is nothing that you can prevent, no matter how hard you try, sometimes it's just really hard. And So there's grief too? There's grief. Absolutely, there's grief. And I, I remember every death I've ever had as a nurse with crystal clarity. And they're hard. They're hard. I have a lot of friends. Uh, My wife is a nurse. She's amazing. She's a trained emergency room nurse. She is so much better at removing herself from the trauma of the patients than I am. I really respect that. I just connect with it. Mm. And... I'm not saying that's the best way to handle it as a nurse, but for me, it, it's, I connect with it so profoundly that it's, it can be quite painful. And having a way to get it out and do it in a healthy way, I think, 
don't know, it makes a difference. It helps. It's interesting. I have been accused my entire life of having too thin a skin. And when I entered journalism, I heard a lot, your skin is too thin for this job. It has been over the years that I've started to embrace that aspect of myself as opposed to kind of pathologize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if you've had a similar journey. Like, are there are there people around you who say, you know, buck up? I, I don't think anyone in my unit would be so callous as to say buck up. Uh -huh. I think certainly some of them can handle it a lot better than I certainly could, but it's also what made me such a good nurse to begin with. Ah, that's what I was interested in hearing from you, is whether you also see that the vulnerability might make you a better provider. I certainly think that it does. Yeah. It allows you to connect with a patient in their most difficult and challenging moments that they've ever had. And if they're conscious and they can express that to you, connecting with them it can make all the difference in their journey. Maybe it makes you a better poet, Brian. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. That's, that's for you and your audience to judge. Thank you so much for being with us. I certainly appreciate it. It's been an honor. Brian Gardner, a nurse manager at Denver Health, where he used to work in the ICU. Gardner took part in the Colorado Resiliency Art Lab, or CORAL, through the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Wonders answers listener questions. One of my favorite place names in Colorado is the Never Summer Range. Well, I'm assuming it means it's always cold and wintry there, so snow never goes completely away. Does summer really never reach the Never Summer Mountains? I'm Eden Lane. Get the answer from Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. A monument to a war hero will be dedicated Sunday in Denver's Lincoln Memorial Park. You may recognize his name, Major General Maurice Rose. One of the city's biggest hospitals is named for him. Rose led the 3rd Armored Division, known as Spearhead. He was killed on the battlefield in the final weeks of World War II. Marshall Fogel wrote a book about Rose, and we spoke in 2018. Why was the 3rd Armored Division, which he led, known as Spearhead? Because Rose decided to name the 3rd Armored Division Spearhead once he gained uh, the position of Major General over the 3rd Armored Division. Spearhead meaning the tip of the spear, and they are the first into battle. The first into battle, and what does that mean in terms of how they're equipped and what they faced? They're equipped with... Uh, tanks, artillery. If you stretch the 3rd Armored Division, which is known as a heavy armored division, in one straight line, it would go for 10 miles. Oh my goodness. So it's sizable and it's armored. Yes. There's only two heavy armored divisions in World War II in Europe, the 3rd and the 2nd. Being assigned to being the, the head of the 3rd Armored Division was the most prestigious award given to a soldier. Eisenhower was looking for a fighter, just like Lincoln was looking for Grant. And Eisenhower found the best field commander in the war, General Maurice Rose. Maurice Rose, uh, who was essentially then a tank commander. How did he do that differently from others? He fought from the front. The men respected him. Uh, he always dressed in a cavalry outfit. He was immaculate. So they called him the immaculate killer of Nazis. He was relentless in pursuing the enemy. And the men respected him because he took the same risks as they did in war. That was unusual to Correct. have someone so high ranking be that far forward. 
One soldier reported to me when he first saw General Rose coming to, to, into battle, he said, I thought Caesar was riding in a chariot with six white horses. They loved him. They donated $35,000 to build Rose Hospital, the men of the 3rd Armored Division, after Rose was killed. He led many wartime assaults. Uh, the Battle of Carrington in France, shortly after the D-Day invasion, that was really a turning point for him, wasn't it? There were, there were some significant battles. Carrington was between Omaha and Utah Beach. It was uh, uh, captured from the Germans by the Airborne Division, who was trapped. Rose led his soldiers into Carrington, stopped the counterattack. German papers later said that had Rose not taken Carrington, they could have rolled up Normandy. Secondly, in Operation Cobra to get out of the uh, French force, Rose broke the defenses of the 7th Army, saved Patton's uh, uh, supply lines, and that's when Eisenhower said, we found our grant. We got the, the right guy, the best field commander in the war. That is truly when he proved himself. What was the mission on that um, he was killed in? He was killed in, at Parrington. Uh, he drove his forces 100 miles in a 24-hour period, which is a record that stands to this day to surround the, the pocket where the Ruhr Industries was located and 325,000 Nazis. Uh, Rose was killed leading his troops into battle to capture Paderborn, Germany in uh, March 30th, 1945. What do you know specifically about how he died? He was looking for his troops, and it was dusk, and he uh, was trapped, and he wanted to get around in his Jeep some Tiger tanks, uh, which were uh, the part of the Nazi forces. They trapped him between a plum tree and a tank, got out of his Jeep, put his hands up, and he was killed for, uh, with 14 bullets in his body. Some people believe to this day he was murdered as a prisoner of war. If that's true, then he's the highest-ranking commander in World War II to be killed in war and combat as a POW. Rose wasn't a West Point graduate. How did his military career take shape? He's truly a, an inspiration, and any educator that reads his book ought to tell his students or uh, uh, her students, how you can make it in life. Rose dropped out of East Denver High School. He never graduated high school, oh. ran away from home, joined the military. His mother had to go get him. And then finally, at the age of 17, they, his parents, uh, Rabbi Rose and his mother, allowed him to go to war. He was wounded in France, left the army, and went back. And the reason Rose was a handsome man, six foot three. Uh, I don't know if I, the book would have sold if he didn't look like Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photo of him on the cover. Uh, yes, and so to make the long story short, uh, he went to war colleges nine years out of the 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and he became uh, a star pupil. He learned how to fight. He learned how to win a war. He learned how to win over his, uh, the people that he... Uh, commanded, and he was a darling of, of the generals that saw him in action. Do you think he was insecure about his education? I think he was driven to be educated, so he probably had probably preceded the fact he was insecure. He never went to West Point, and that, right. that's amazing that he, he just uh, learned how to fight. What was it like for Jews in the military during Rose's time? 
It was as bad as you could imagine. The 1920s, we had Henry Ford, a, a rabid anti-Semite, George Patton, a rabid anti-Semite, uh, we, uh, Father Coughlin, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, anti-Semitism was rampant. And in 1918, the uh, government formed the Secret Military Intelligence Division, which uh, wasn't made declassified until the 70s, keeping Aryans in the service and keeping Jews and other minorities out. They taught social Darwinism. Rose had to overcome. Boy, did he have to overcome. What were some of the things he had to overcome? What stories stand out in your mind? Being a Jew, uh, uh, it was undesirable. Uh, the army did not want any Jews in the army. Uh, he he kept it underneath. His personal goal was to be a great soldier, but he 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 was a, a nominal Jew. He wasn't a practicing Jew, though he was bar mitzvah early in life. He spoke Yiddish, uh, knew the Torah, knew the five books of Moses. But uh, that's what makes the story so great. Well, I think what's also fascinating about this time is that in, in World War II, you obviously have the U.S. fighting, you know, rampant anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism. And yet, as a Jew in the armed forces, he's both fighting Nazis, but also fighting anti-Semitism, I guess, within his own country, his own ranks, and though, though in a different form. It's almost as if God gave you the answer. The first soldier to move into Germany in World War II and to break the German border, capture the first German town, fight down, uh, uh, shoot down a German airplane, was the Jewish general Maurice Rose. How biblical is that? How biblical is that? <laughs> Denver's Jewish community chose to honor him by naming the hospital after him. And I think you said that his fellow soldiers rallied to help make that happen. Why was it decided that this should be the route to honor him? Because he was, a, first of all, he's the first real Jewish national hero. His death was, uh, was so uh, bereaved by uh, General Marshall Eisenhower, the president of the United States. All the newspapers reported it, and they felt that a naming it in honor of a Jewish war hero would uh, grant the hospital national publicity to raise money to build this hospital, which is the first to allow a black doctor on the staff. And so there's a legacy here that's important to our Colorado community. Do you remember what year that was? Yes. Uh, after they built the hospital, uh, there was a black leader named Sonny Lawson in Five Points, Denver, that brought Dr. Edmund Knoll to Denver, and the hospital waived uh, the, the privilege of having to be honored by Denver Medical Society. You had to get in that first. Blacks were not allowed. Huh. Rose Hospital waived it. Edmund Knoll became the first black doctor, and his wife, Rachel, was the first elected official in Colorado to be elected to office on the school board in Denver in 1965. 1965. And when, when did he become doctor? Uh, he was a doctor in the war, Dr. Knoll, and at about 1940. Eight, when the hospital opened, Edwin Knoll was the first black doctor on the staff at any hospital in Denver. Not everyone in the Denver Jewish community agreed with naming the hospital for Rose, I understand, because there were some who believed he'd converted to Christianity. 
Will you clear that up for us? Yes, and the book addresses it. Uh, there was a concern because first there was a cross on the grave in Germany, and then two Jewish chaplains went out, pulled the cross up, put it down the Star of David, and a picture of that's in the book. Then Rose goes to Montgrat in the Netherlands, and he's going to be buried as a Jew, but his wife who was Episcopalian, was treated very poorly by the Denver community. And at one point she said, I want him in Arlington with a cross on his grave. Ultimately, the answer is Rose never converted. But there were pressures all around him and his family, as you note. Marshall, thanks for sharing this story with us. I won't drive by Rose Hospital the same way again. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Marshall Fogel's book is Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. We spoke in 2018. On Sunday, a military procession begins at History, Colorado. Bells will toll and there will be a flyover as a monument is dedicated to General Rose in Denver's Lincoln Memorial Park. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to this team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Shauna Lewis and Kevin Beatty. You're with CPR News and KRCC.